and Donna, of course, and and I'm a real uh, good example because I have a pretty deep strain of stinginess. You can ask Gwen. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not all unwholesome. I mean, some of it is just uh, a deep value of frugality, but but it's definitely stingy too, and. Uh, so it's it's really a powerful edge for me to uh, learn about generosity and really start to tap into the joy of giving, and and I can say now I'm a sincere student of generosity. <laughs> I'm not a complete failure anymore. And the thing is, I have to say I've given a lot. You know, I don't have a lot of resources, but I have given a lot over the years. But I'm always a little afraid. So here's a, just a tip, like in terms of talking now about joy. Whatever you give, don't be stingy with that amount. Really enjoy giving it. And in a few months when you pay your taxes, happily give that money to the government. You're going to give it anyway. So do it and, and really wish that they do something good with that money that makes people's lives better. And any time that you're buying something at a store, really see it as an act of generosity just because it's set up in, you know, as commerce where you know you get something and you pay something. Yeah, that may be the superficial, but how it feels in your heart is really up to each of us. And we can really sense that I'm paying for these groceries May this money in part feed you, pay for the farmers, and pay for the truck drivers, and all the things. Like, and really just have that sense of that um, belonging and contributing. Why not? <clears throat> you know, we get to decide what kind of stories we're telling ourselves. <laughs> There's a, a book that I came across, I forget where, but there was an article in Sun Magazine. Some of you know, it's a nice magazine. They have some good stuff from time to time. And this this guy, let's see if I can put my hands on it. I think his name is Rob Reesley. But he wrote a book called Pronoria, which is the opposite of paranoia. Bresney, yeah. And... Uh, but he says that we should imagine that the world, the universe, is conspiring to shower us with blessings. <laughs> now imagine if we did that. You know, it would be a very different world. I hear this. Tales of affliction and mayhem and corruption and tragedy are inherently more interesting than tales of triumph and liberation and pleasure and ingenuity. We believe that stories about the rot are not inherently more captivating than stories about the splendor. On the contrary, given how predictable and omnipresent the former have become, they are actually quite dull. Obsessing on evil is boring. Rousing fear is a hackneyed shtick. Wallowing in despair is a bad habit. Indulging in cynicism is akin to committing a copycat crime. And this is the thing about joy. And it's really related to the you know, the more subtle teachings on anatta, the impersonal nature. Because one of the effects of ignorance is, you know, just normal self centered <coughs> thinking is when I'm thinking a thought, the presumption is it's me talking to me, something like that. And there's this presumption that it's true in a set way, couldn't be otherwise. Because the way the sense of self usually works, it's it has this sense of like not being inconsistent, even though our actual even within a day, even within an hour, our actual experience of self is all over the place. But in any moment of self-centered thinking, there's always this lie of 
consistency. Like, no, no, this is the same self that was there five minutes ago or two days ago or whatever. And so this idea that we can basically construct the world we're living in instead of, oh, of course I can't construct, you know, this is what's happening to me. There's a sense, it kind of helps solidify the sense of self when we define ourself as being screwed by life or, you know, in this sort of set of circumstances. And it's a real provocative challenge to realize I could be any number any I could be any number of human beings right now, depending on the kind of story, the kind of things I'm paying attention to. What what way for me to be in this moment is enlivening? What kind of thoughts are useful to entertain, to notice? What sort of thoughts are better left coming and going without much attention? If we don't take responsibility for how the heart's doing, we tend to gravitate towards despair, like giving up, or a nihilistic uh, um, view of life. We stop experimenting, engaging, and realizing how it all works. This is one of the interesting things that happens on retreat, where we isn't this true? Really hit dark, low places. And we really touch into really light and beautiful places. So which is true? And the more interesting question isn't so much what's true, absolutely true, but what's skillful? What's the skillful way now, in this moment, to be planting seeds of happiness. It's really that taking responsibility for joy, for ease, for peace, and for release. I mean, one question we could ask ourselves, is it okay to aspire to be happy? And it's, I just have noticed how interesting it is it, because when you ask yourself, and just do it now, is it okay for me, not just theoretically for there to be happiness, but in my life, is this something I can really aspire to? Given the world I live in, given my age, given my body size, given my mental functioning, given my bank accounts, is it realistic for me to aspire to be free, to be peaceful, to be easeful, to have a full, light heart? And, and just notice what, how the mind responds to that question. We're, in some ways we're afraid to consider the possibility. And I think when I look at myself, I don't know if it's the same for you, but the nice thing about um, you know whatever level of misery or whatever level of difficulty you're finding in your life, and there's a whole new school in Western psychology, um, it's all about the study of happiness, and they talk about set points, maybe you've seen some of the research, and about how stable people's set point is for happiness. And although things can shoot up the happiness for a while, like winning the lottery, you know, in a surprisingly short amount of time, the person's self-reported sense of happiness is where it used to be. And same with difficult stuff happening. After a while, the set point, the person, how they describe their happiness, how they sense it, is back where it was. And there's just a few things that can shift it long-term. A couple of things that can shift it to, um, 
to imagining that I'm less happy than I used to be is chronic unemployment and losing a child. That makes kind of sense. And interestingly, you might guess this, but what shifts the set point higher where there's a very real sense, personal sense, that I'm happier than I used to be is altruistic behavior, but it has to be altruistic behavior you think you chose to do. You can't be compelled <laughs> compelled to be nice or generous. It has to be something you've chosen to do, and it has to be like uh, ongoing, you know, not just like one act of altruistic behavior, but regular participation in altruistic behavior that you are choosing to do really is the one thing that the statistics demonstrate changes people's reporting of how much happiness they're experiencing in life. Now, all of us are contributing in different ways. You know, we're in relationships, we're showing up, we're doing our work at work, we're... But we, how are we imagining that? Oh, I have to do that. You know, they're my partner, I have to, you know, do the dishes every once in a while, or I have to, you know, empty the garbage, or these things that we do because of this business-like relationship, like, they'll misbehave if I misbehave, so I'm gonna kind of own my half so that they're, I can at least have that guilt card that they've got to own their half, right? We can play that card. Hey, did you see what I did? So that's a lot of how we see our activity in, in our intimate relationships, even with our pets, you know, like I feed you and then, remember? <laughs> You're supposed to be cute. You're supposed to be doting. That sort of thing. More with dogs than with cats. <laughs> but we could, we could find another way of seeing and describing our life where everything we do is a gift. This is uh, like we do at the end of the night, that chant, sharing blessings. It's part of a, a really powerful, I think, teaching. Not to think of it in magical ways. You know, in Buddhist culture, there's a lot of... I, I don't know the right word. I'm going to use magical thinking, but it's, that might be a little uh, more negative than I want to be. There's a lot of thinking about these things like merit and karma that people tend to take more literally than maybe they should. But the sharing the merit, the somehow happily giving everything that's good away, right? the telltale sign is, how does that feel? So when we drive home in a respectable way tomorrow, without cutting people off and really letting people in who seem to want to come in and just sort of taking care of everybody, including ourselves. You know, can we do that because it feels good to, to drive in that generous way as opposed to, I don't want to get a ticket or I don't want to get killed? The results will be the same or the, uh, you know, the way we drive might be the same but the effect in the heart will be really different. Same like when I'm cooking, even if I'm just cooking for myself, but if I'm cooking in a really generous way, like this attitude of making something generous, making something that's medicinal, like will really take care of my body and anybody else who eats it, and just feeling the abundance, like so grateful that there's good food that I have to prepare this meal. I feel more joyful, I feel more alive than if I'm grumpy or if I'm feeling rushed or if I'm disconnected because I'm listening to some news that is stimulating, you know, self-righteous rage. <laughs> and then that's, you know, that's the heart that's being cultivated.
I remember right when I was, I mean, I had been practicing for about 13 years, but <clears throat> eventually I really became a, a real student of the Buddhist teachings in the mid-90s. And I was uh, around a scholar, a Buddhist scholar, who I really respect. And, you know, just for my own study and for my practice, I really thought, and it, and it made, I really trusted this sense that I was having that the whole path, which is so interesting because there's such a big deal about it being impersonal and don't take it personally, but I really came to understand the whole path as this progressive refinement of happiness. And toward the end, you know, of our practice in our more refined moments, that happiness is very sublime, but it's not personal. But all the way along the path, we're not taking bitter medicine, bitter medicine, bitter medicine, with some hope that somewhere a little bit beyond where you could possibly see, we'll realize, you know, get the gold or something. Or at least we won't be punished. <laughs> you know, so we have this idea of the spiritual life being arduous and difficult and I have to do it because I don't want to be bad and I don't want to go to hell. But it might be more useful. We might actually walk the path better, more skillfully, if we have this confidence that we're taking care of ourselves and all beings in the best possible way. Because actually that turns out to be a very useful barometer. If I'm living my life where people around me are regularly suffering and I'm suffering, it's time to be reflective about how we're practicing. What am I doing? Am I getting the results that my intuition say? Like the Buddha says, the happiness the taste of freedom is there in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. That taste is really what draws us in. Initially, sometimes at least, depending on how things unfolded for you, but sometimes at least, we don't. We're, we might feel like a tangle of, you know, knots and heaviness and darkness, but we might sense in another person like some flavor of release, some flavor of ease, a kind of lightness or nimbleness as they navigate their ups and downs in life. Right, That's a nice way of sort of evaluating. I, I mean, I think that's actually a good way to decide whether to dig in in a particular place. Look at some of the people who have been doing the practice for a long time and just watch them in different settings and just get a sense if there's anything you sense in how they are in their bodies, in their lives, in interactions, that is something that you feel you want to aspire to. Any lightness, any ease of being, right? Because if not, then why would we dig in there? And then we want to, once we sort of start digging in, we want to have that assess our experience for that flavor of release, of freedom, more space, more pervasive goodness or kindness that's available. There's a beautiful story that Sharon Salzberg tells of doing a retreat on her own at, at IMS in one of the rooms. I think she might have been living in at the time, but and she was doing loving-kindness practice and just sort of pounding out the phrases and not feeling like anything was happening. And I forget exactly how the story goes, but I believe that it was like a month-long or supposed to be maybe two-month retreat, but something interrupted her retreat and she had to leave after three or four weeks, something like that. And so she was rushing to pack up and, you know, feeling like she didn't really get the goods from the retreat. 
And as she was in the bathroom loading up her toiletry bag, she dropped some bottle and it broke. And I forget exactly what her first thought was, but you know, you idiot. And the next thought was, I care about you, or something like that. <laughs> so that just the, the naturalness of love, right? Like the mind, the heart's never that far away from kindness. There may be a flash of anger. It's nice after 27 or 28 years, I'm more confused now. <laughs> I know, but now I'm confused. But anyway, it's getting up there. And uh, we lived together for a few years before we got married. And uh, But what's interesting now, I find, for I think for both of us, but uh, I think we feel safer letting the flashes of anger arise, you know, and even worse than anger, like, you know, you despicable human being. <laughs> Not that we would say that, we don't say that, but we don't have to, because <laughs> it's a whole body feeling that disgust or that anger or that, you know, whatever it might be, I'm done, I'm out of here. <laughs> What's that line? You're dead to me. <laughs> because part of what allows a human being to not be afraid of this kind of conditioning is they know and, and deeply trust the proximity of goodness. So why would I need to pretend that that's not there? Only if I'm really afraid that's who I am essentially you know, the one who hates this person or the one who wants out or the one who, whatever. But the more that that's just a visiting thunderstorm or whatever, you know, it's like, it's actually kind of interesting. There's so much power. It looks so real. You know, it has so much life energy. It's always refreshing like after a really intense thunderstorm. After those times, I don't know if you have that same feeling, but you know, it's <laughs> you know, just that like something big has happened, you know, and the rain is kind of washed and there's, there's sort of a freshness. And also there's that light feeling like, boy, that could have been really bad, but it wasn't. And, and even that is, a, you know, I think an expression of joy because in a way the mind, the heart's less afraid, less feeling like it has to control everything, what we say, who I am, how to, you know, do this moment right. When I share the, you know, I talked about the five jhanic factors before, but there are a lot of, that's, that's really talking about developing the mind, secluding the mind, which is one of the happinesses. But there are several of these happinesses. I mean, and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right unless we at least mentioned the first happiness of sense pleasure. And there's nothing wrong, there's nothing against the Buddhist teaching to cook a nice meal or to go cross-country skiing or see a good movie or making love or, you know, any of the ordinary sense pleasures, reading a good book, watching a funny movie. It's a particular hell realm for when people are afraid of sense pleasures that are actually available to them, right? I mean, we... Hopefully you haven't experienced this much, but you know that Purit Wynn just finished a book on the, the witches in Salem in New England. And you know, some there are some times, even in our culture, you know, little pockets, cult, uh, little communities that pathologize joy and just ordinary sense joy, sense pleasure joy. like. If you're feeling good, there's probably something bad here, you know. And I think 
because uh, we're in this culture, we all have that a little bit. Is it okay to feel good? And it's just sort of an interesting question to ask. Like, do you notice when you go get a cookie or chocolate? I mean, I sort of feel like I have to sneak. And to, or rush. You know, what's that about with sense pleasures? Instead of really letting it land. Because that's how we learn how beautiful a sense pleasure can be and how ephemeral it is. We want both. We don't actually see how ephemeral it is unless we really let it in. See the beautiful sunset. You know, I actually saw a pileated woodpecker twice today. I don't know if anybody else saw one. Maybe the same one, I'm not sure. But, um, but you know, it's just delightful to see these creatures we share the planet with, especially, you know, the ones who have bothered to become interesting, you know, and have lots of <laughs> colors. Or it's in, What's interesting about that is how um, uninterested we are in animals we see a lot and how entranced we are with animals we don't see. I mean, it's just sort of, joy is a funny thing. But why wouldn't we take it however it comes, these sort of ordinary sense joys? Why not just take it? There's a beautiful poem. Um, some of you might remember, some of you old-timers might remember Sue Cochran, who longtime leader at the center. Her brother, who's a writer, wrote this poem. And I think it's probably partly based on Sue, who's had stage four cancer for a long, long time, maybe 10 years now, just dodging one cancer bullet after another. And um, so the poem is called Stage Four. His name is Mick Cochran. And this was also published in The Sun just a couple years ago. Now I believe in everything. Aromatherapy, peppermint, and sandalwood, and lavender, and especially frankincense, because, you know, the three wise men. Mindful breathing, I believe, I believe in that too. Mindful eating, mindful walking, mindful anything at all. Incense and holy water, especially when my grandmother sprinkled it on our car before a long trip. The power of positive thinking and the wisdom of expecting the worst. Eerie coincidences and anniversaries plant-based proteins, antioxidants, micronutrients, and superfoods, ground flax seeds on your oatmeal, cutting-edge pharmacology and computer-assisted surgery and gene therapy, also talk therapy and shock therapy and art therapy, therapy dogs and therapy horses, bibliotherapy, and emotive therapy, both rational and irrational. I believe in church basements and all the steps, not just the 12 famous ones, every slogan, and I especially believe in the guy in St. Paul who used to say, fuck your bad day, work the program. <laughs> That's something they say in the, the 12 steps, if you don't get the reference. I believe in St. Christopher and St. Anthony, John and Paul, Cosmos and Damien, the Buddha and the Dalai Lama and Satchel Page, who knew that fried foods angry up the blood. And I believe in my friend Ron, whose only advice for his children was, always stop at a lemonade stand. Doesn't matter where you're going, who's waiting for you, or how late you are. You pull over, get out of the car, take it all in. Savor the sun on your face, the sweetness on your tongue, this little kid watching, you drop a 20 in her jar. <laughs> it's just a nice reflection on, you know, and especially in light of cancer and vulnerability. But just to, uh, yeah, just to take it all in and to live with that delight, even as we're trying to stay alive. You know, someone might who's dealing with stage four cancer. So, 
As a Buddhist, as somebody interested in these teachings that this person long ago put down and many humans have benefited from studying and putting into practice over these centuries, right? So we're someone who's intrigued by these teachings, then that means we're not just transforming our relationship with the deepest, more most subtle aspects of nature, our experience, but we're also transforming our relationship to ordinary sense experience. Just like being in community, that's an ordinary experience to appreciate on retreat. That somebody gets up early and cooks our oatmeal for us, right? These very ordinary things that people built this building for groups of people to come together and do this kind of work together. It's really sweet. It was just a family who lived on the land and I forget uh, the style of Christianity they were part of, but it's related to evangelical, but it wasn't evangelical exactly. Seventh-day? No. Charismatic? It may have been charismatic Christians, but th- there was a word that they used, and I forget. The Franciscans used to always tell us about the original family that built this, and then they gave it to the Franciscans when they got older and needed to retire, and then the Franciscans ran it in the same spirit for a couple decades, and then they sold it to the Buddhist monks, the Metta Meditation Center. But just to kind of let these things in, letting life touch our heart, and noticing, you know, the whiteness of the snow, all these ordinary sense pleasures. And then to... Like, it's actually okay to, because we will anyway, as a living being, we desire more, not less, sense pleasures, right? In the same way, we desire not to experience sense pain. So it's very appropriate for a living being, a natural, impersonal living being, like all of us here, to, how do I get more of the good stuff? unless of the bad stuff. Because if it's really a natural process how things unfold, what, if anything, can be done to make there arise over time more of the pleasant and less of the painful? And the Buddha had an answer to that. In this lawful, natural world, if one cultivates generosity and non-harming as guiding values in the heart, then over time you'll get good stuff. Now the question is, are we interested in, like, is that just magical thinking? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden, you know, we've got this, you know, protecting power and so tornadoes won't hit our home or Burglars won't steal our... Now in Minneapolis, I don't know what's happening in your neighborhoods, but... And this happened to Comagron's van. We used to have a van that someone donated to bring all this stuff on the, to these retreats. But people are coming by. They can get a little bit of money for quickly pulling your catalytic converter off of your car, often causing it more damage than is worth repairing for these cars. And then there's some precious metals in the catalytic converters that can be sold. I think it's just like 50, 75 bucks worth of metals that you can get for it. So it's not even a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> so we, we're not going to be immune from those things happening, but if we live generously in a way appropriate you know, to our setting, if we live with a deep, resonant commitment to non-harming, in the long arc of living, the world mirrors back. You know, if I act in a stingy, hostile way, the world is going to mirror that back to me. If I start living in a more generous, kind, loving way, the world's going to mirror that back. And this is for each of us to check out. 
it kind of astounds me when I catch my mind justifying being irritated or justifying being less than generous or less than kind. It's because it, it, as soon as I see it, it's so obviously not helping me, not setting emotion happiness. It's so, it's like clear as day. But the moment before I saw it clearly, within that bubble of being irritated, it made so much sense to be irritated. Like when you're driving and there's some obnoxious person on the road or whatever is triggering the irritation. It makes so much sense. Or when I'm reading the news and wanting to condemn the ignorant politicians or something like that. It makes so much sense for me to be tight until I, in a sense, step out of the bubble and look. How's this working? How's this working for you, Mark? What is getting, you know, set in motion? Yeah. You, a couple of days ago, you said something about George Bush and what, what, what you saw the goodness in perhaps the relationship with his daughters. Under the current circumstances, what can you... What nice thinking you say about <laughs> the current president. Yeah. Well, I, there may be people in this room that room that really like the current president, right? And we should always be, because um, it's sort of uh, presumptuous to presume that my righteous, you know, I personally um, don't think this person is a good president, but... I'm trying to keep in mind that not everybody sees the way that I see and that I may not be right, right? Just to have that openness. But when I see somebody who I sense, like I'm pretty good at sensing suffering. That comes a lot easier for to me than sensing goodness. So, and that breaks my heart. Like there are a lot of politicians that I wouldn't wish anybody to be living their life, right? That would be a hell realm. And so I don't need, uh, it's like I have a lot of compassion for President Trump and uh, I wish him well. I really want him to be happy. I think it would make him a better president if he were happy. And. Uh, you know, so I think there's a for, there's a way for anybody to, to transform our relationship to anybody. I mean, it's one thing if you're in the moment of being abused. There's even a story from the time of the Buddha where somebody had been caught by a tiger, and um, <clears throat> it was too late. You know, the tiger really had him; it already started to maul him and eat him. And the monks that were around got close enough to tell the monk, you know, basically to keep practicing, not to harbor ill will towards the tiger. It's not going to do any good, you know. And and so this is the... Now, that would be really hard practice, clearly, to not have negativity towards the tiger or any beast or any person that was abusing you. But it's a beautiful aspiration because it's all about functionally what helps in the moment. Ill will seems to help within the bubble, but from the more spacious balance of mindfulness, it's very clear that ill will never helps. Now, a lot of people argue, oh no, you need anger to motivate. Well, you may need something you call anger, but from my understanding, personal understanding, you're, what you're talking about is an anger. You're talking about a fierce compassion, right? Because compassion, love can be really strong and fierce and unafraid of action. But it's not anger. It's just doing what needs to be done because we care, because we're not willing to put up with the suffering that's getting set in motion because we care. So when we really see the constriction of anger and the self-view that anger comes out of, anger really needs a target, you know, 
I hate you. It's really hard to be angry if we don't know who to target the anger toward. Because it's this dualistic thing. It really is coming out of self-view. And that's what makes it so damaging. So that's just transforming our relation to sense pleasure. And then when we get good at that, our life just becomes more harmonious and what's more available is the happiness of samadhi. And that's what we talked a lot about in the instructions in the morning in my talk about uh, the five jhanic factors, connecting, sustaining, joy, ease, one-pointedness. This is just the maturing of samadhi, the mind that is in this beautiful balance. And basically retreated from the hindrances that Wynn talked about last night. That's what we mean by this basic um, stability of awareness of samadhi is I'm not being pushed around by negative tendencies right now. And so it's uh, our own personal deva realm, celestial realm, angelic realm that we can get into in moments in practice where we don't feel burdened by life and the complexity of life and the suffering in life. Life hasn't changed. Our age hasn't changed. Our health hasn't changed. Our financial situation hasn't changed. The world and all the ways that people are being harmed hasn't changed. But there the mind, the heart is feeling very full and light and free of oppression. And they don't contradict the world being the way it is, the more relative situation hasn't changed, but the heart is experiencing having a real taste of freedom. And that's the happiness of samadhi. And it really depends on the purity of the heart, the heart free of the hindrances that Wynne was talking about. And then that purity, the side effect, the beautiful side effect of that samadhi is the mind sees more clearly. And this begins to transform the view. The mind starts to have insight, a surprising insight, into a way of being free of self-view, free of self-centeredness. So now the mind has this beautiful balance of samadhi, it's seeing more clearly, the mind isn't indulging in the calm, but it's really using it to see the way it is. And it learns that it can see, experience the moment free of selfing. And that insight, the bliss of that insight, the lightness of that insight is much greater than the peacefulness, the tranquility of a really calm mind. Because what the heart experiences with a little insight is not only, boy, I'm in a good place, it's a taste of, not only am I in a good place, I've never left this good place, and nothing can ever take this good place away. Because the insight continues to reverberate even when that particular moment passes, right? It leaves an impression in the mind stream. Deeper insight leaves an impression that things have always been okay, they're okay, they can never not be okay. And I know that doesn't necessarily make sense, but that's the taste of a deeper insight. It changes how the mind relates, how the mind sees the world. Well, what about the sense of helplessness? Well, that goes away even when you start having nice sense experience, helplessness goes away. You put me in a nice bath with a little lavender and something entertaining to watch on my cell phone. <laughs> I don't feel helpless all of a sudden. And then if I, you know, feeling the joy of generosity, feeling that, you know, freedom from remorse because I'm behaving myself, I'm not taking advantage, I have the sleep of the just, you know, I feel... I don't feel helpless. I know how to 
find a very earthy happiness by being in my situation generous, in my situation kind. But that's kind of your little box, though. It's, I mean, this overall social responsibility and the, the general feeling of helplessness to change a course of or a direction that um, that is troubling. I'm not sure I understand. Are you, are you saying that the, there's a lot of suffering in the world? There is, but it, it's, it seems to be exacerbated and, and stirred up, and, and it makes me feel helpless. But, but is your helplessness helping anybody, including yourself? No. So why? <laughs> why justify it? Why see it as appropriate if it's not helping anybody? I don't know that it's uh, whether it's appropriate or not. It's just a, just a feeling that I, it's hard to deal with. Right, but as you observe your day, are you helpless at the same intensity the whole day? Because sometimes you're less helpless, sometimes more. So if you're really understanding it as not being helpful, then notice what feeds the helplessness and notice what feeds a sense, a wholesome sense of empowerment. I can contribute to my well-being and the well-being of the world and go that way in the direction where you feel empowered to contribute to your well-being and the well-being of the world. doesn't mean we're going to fix all the world's problems, but it means that we're living a life that contributes. Because helplessness doesn't help anybody. So we want to see that as not helping anybody. So then we're motivated not to feed that that uh, idea. So I want to finish up in the, just uh, in another minute, just to review. So, with mindfulness and wisdom, we ordinary we, you know, bring that mindfulness to the ordinary world of sense experience, and we learn how to relate to sense pleasure and sense pain in ways that are really skillful. We don't presume we know how to do that. We need to actually show up freshly. There's a nice dinner. I don't know how to how to relate to this dinner. I'm going to bring mindfulness and I'll figure it out moment by moment how to be here. And it's really okay to want to maximize pleasure at any level. Gross, ordinary sense pleasure. The most subtle is Nibbana, the happiness of the unconditioned. A mind not framed in any way by conditioned experience. Right? I can't conceive of that. But I'm interested. <laughs> right? But And in a lot of what the Buddha has taught, I have some experience with. And so I'm really open to even a more profound kind of happiness, the whole spectrum, so that we're not seeing our spiritual path as a big should. Oh, i got to do it. i got to get up tomorrow morning at 5.30, sit again. But we're, you know, when we come in, and even before we come in, when we're brushing our teeth, when we're getting out of bed, that actually occurred to me this morning. Just as I rolled, put my feet, I noticed my crock sitting there, you know, and sliding my feet in, it's like, oh yeah, I can just like do this, this moment with some integrity, and then the next moment, and then the next. And it's really a practice of happiness. And if it's not working, like you're not finding happiness, try something else. And the place we often check is attitude. Okay. What other possibilities? You know, you look at your attitude file. What other possible attitudes could I bring to this moment? You know, being the the grump, how many times do we have to be the grump before we realize it doesn't really work? <laughs> so let's try something else. I'll just end with a poem by Havis, this uh, Sufi Persian poet, Sufism, if you don't know, is the sort of the my mystical um, arm of Islam. Really beautiful. He's sort of a contemporary of, of Rumi. 
several times in the last week by Havis. Ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. And several times in the last week, God himself, God herself, has even come to my door asking me for your address. Once I said, God, I thought you knew everything. Why are you asking me where your lovers live? And the beloved replied, Indeed, Havis, I do know everything. But it's fun playing dumb once in a while. And I love intimate chat and the warmth of your heart's fire. Maybe we should make this poem into a song. I think it has potential. How far does this refrain, refrain sound? For I know it is a truth. Ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. And several times in the last week, God herself has come to my door, so sweetly asking for your address, wanting the beautiful warmth of your heart's fire. I like that because it's a real example of shifting the attitude from I'm looking for happiness, happiness is looking for us. And I know that sounds a little trite, but it's really important because there is so much difficulty, so much suffering in life, it's really important to, uh, to kind of call out the self-importance or the seriousness we have around difficulty. As if it's the only half of the equation, you know, pain and suffering. And, and there's no other half, no other side to it. And it's not about forgetting pain and suffering. It's about seeing the whole truth. So I'll leave it there. We have a little time to see the whole truth in walking. <laughs> so just first, let's take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.